Bill, and it's my privilege to give you God's Word here today. Uh, we are finishing up sort of uh, a series we've entitled Encounters with Jesus, and today we're looking at John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29, and we're looking at this encounter by one of the most famous disciples in the world. His name is Thomas, and let's look at what he says and how he engages our Savior here today. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. This is the encounter between Jesus Christ and his disciple Thomas. This is God's word. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put, your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, as I mentioned, we're coming to um, a close on looking at various passages in the Bible in which different people with different backgrounds and different ethnicities and spiritual issues come to Jesus and dialogue with him in order to discover something new about life and themselves. And we're looking finally in John chapter 20 with this encounter between Jesus and Thomas. And Thomas, I would argue, is one of the most famous disciples because even if you ask the culture and the world out there, who are some of the famous disciples of Jesus? Maybe they'll say John, maybe they say Paul, but I feel that even non-believers know that there's Thomas. And the reason is because in our culture, there's this phrase called doubting Thomas. And if anyone was skeptical, if anyone was difficult to convince, to engage in order to change somebody's mind, we would always say, he's a doubting Thomas. And you may be thinking, why are we ending this series on a down note? Shouldn't it be what we looked at before? Um, Mary, who's just giving uh, all her best in her treasures by pouring out that perfume on Jesus. Why couldn't we end on a note like that? And the reason I chose Thomas to end this particular part of the series is because no matter who you are, where you came from, whether you've grown up in the church or visiting for the first time, if you're honest with yourself, you have doubts about God and the Christian faith. We all have doubts. It's very relatable. It's common. It's every day. In other words, we end on Thomas because every one of us can relate. Now, in our church, it may be a pressure if you're a leader or an elder or deacon or a community group leader. You're thinking, I should be of pure faith and never have any doubts. But Although that is actually a goal, it may not be the most honest about your Christian faith because everyone, depending on the season and circumstance, will run into doubts. And so that's why we're ending on Thomas because he may be the most relatable because, as I said, even non-Christians know about Thomas. They can relate to him. They know there's a skeptical world out there. There's no, there, they, we know that we live in a culture that's intellectually skeptical and curious about everything. And so Thomas is someone we can relate to. 
And so I want to look at this dialogue and this conversation between Doubting Thomas, which, by the way, the Bible doesn't call him Doubting Thomas, and actually is probably not a fair designation of Thomas. He's actually Doubting Thomas, and then later on he becomes and has what we'll see one of the greatest and most climactic expressions of who Jesus is. That's Thomas. But we'll get there. Three things we learn about this. One, everyone has doubts. Every one of you, you and I have doubts. The Bible affirms this. It states this. Thomas represents that. Everyone has doubts about the Christian faith, whether believer or not. Secondly, we'll recognize that the Bible, that Christianity is very honest about your doubts. It's honest about doubts and skepticism. You know, it's not just this by and by, pie in the sky sort. It's really honest about your concerns. It wants to intellectually engage, emotionally engage with all your concerns about Christianity. The Bible is realistic about life. It's honest about your doubts. And then thirdly, I'll end with a couple of thoughts. If you have doubts here this morning, and if you don't, that's okay because you will, what do you do with them? How do you engage these doubts? And so let's look at this. Everyone has doubts. Christianity is very real about them. And then what do you do with them? So let's look at this. Everyone has doubts. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon has been said, has said this once. On a sudden, the thought crossed my mind, and he's speaking as a, a great preacher of the Bible, the thought crossed my mind, which I abhorred but could not conquer, he says, that there was no God, no Christ, no hell, no, no heaven, no hell, and that all my prayers were, were but a farce, and that I might as well have whistled to the winds or spoken to the howling waves. So even he's sharing that as a great Baptist preacher that have moved the world in the church, he has doubts, almost to say that it was a farce. He may be whistling to the winds. He may be thinking and speaking to the howling waves. See, what you notice here is that it's not just Spurgeon as just one of many examples. You have a lot of doubts. That doubts comes to everyone. It comes to pagans, it comes to non-Christians, it comes to skeptics, non-believers, but also to great Baptist preachers. It came to Spurgeon, and in our passage, it came to Thomas. Now, if you didn't realize this, that's remarkable. That is mind-blowing, because even in John 20, what did they say about Thomas? He was one of the 12 disciples. He was eating with Jesus. He was talking with him, learning from him. He witnessed Jesus resurrect Lazarus. He saw Jesus do all kinds of wonderful works. And in John chapter 20, he's a relentless skeptic. You can't convince him. Now, if Thomas is skeptical and doesn't believe in Jesus, and he was living with Jesus, doing life with him for the past three years, what makes you think that you and I don't have doubts as well? Now, it's a little bit dangerous because I'm not trying to instill doubts in the faith. That's not my job as a pastor, but I want to be honest about this. They don't just come to outsiders. I want to recognize that. I want this to be a safe place to bring your doubts and concerns about Christianity. They don't come just to outsiders. They come to consummate insiders. They came to Thomas. Thomas, here's a classic skeptic. For some reason, when Jesus resurrected, he came to the disciples. For some reason, Thomas wasn't there the first time. That's sort of the situation. The other disciples were. When Jesus left, Thomas came back. The disciples would go over to Thomas and say, guess what? Jesus, you died on the cross. He appeared to us. He resurrected. Now think about this. How stubborn do you have to be if the other 10 disciples, because Judas was gone by this time, other 10 disciples were saying, I saw Jesus. 
And Thomas, doubting Thomas, he's like, I don't believe this. No, there's no way. And 10 other guys, the band of brothers, were with you, and you still don't believe. You got to have some, that's some deep skepticism right there. That's some deep level uh, stubbornness. That's, that's someone as a pastor who just is my nightmare, because no matter what you say and how many witnesses and godly people that you have, you can't convince this guy. So what does Thomas say? Verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Now his words are strong. It wasn't just, ah, maybe if I see the nails in his hands and the scar, maybe I'll believe. No, he's strong. He's, he's black and white. He's binary. He's saying, unless I see it with my own eyes, unless I feel it and touch it with my own fingers. It's not just say, I might be, he says, I will never believe. He's strong. This guy is no joke. Thomas is really a doubting Thomas. His words are not light, but they're very deep. They're very powerful. They're strong. He's not saying, well, maybe I would believe if this happens. No, no, no. That's not Thomas. He says, unless I touch his wounds, unless I see this. Thomas has been with Jesus, as I said. He's ministered with him. He witnessed his power. He ate with him. This is the irony, and this may reflect your life because it depends on where you are in your Christian walk. The irony is that Thomas, in other parts of the Gospel of John, has showed deep, radical faith because Thomas was there with other disciples when Jesus performed one of his greatest miracles in raising Lazarus. Mary and Martha come over. They say his brother, their brother has passed away. Jesus has this great demonstration that he's the Son of God, and he says, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And in John chapter 11, verse 16, this is what we read about what Thomas has said about that. So Thomas called the twin. They always designate him as a twin. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now that's what Thomas is saying. He's saying in John chapter 11, just nine chapters earlier, he was so dedicated to Jesus, such a believer in Jesus, that he says, let's go die with him. And it wasn't hyperbole. I think Thomas really meant that. Fast forward nine chapters later, I'll never believe. He went from let's die with him to I'll never believe. Now, it's really, it's really just, the, the Christianity, it puts everything in there. If Thomas is supposed to be one of the heroes of the story, by the way, you never put somebody who's so obtuse, somebody so who's reluctant, somebody who can't be convinced by the other 10 disciples, someone who seems almost schizophrenic. On the one hand, let's die with Jesus. On the other hand, I'll never believe. If you're writing a legend, like some skeptics say about the gospel, you would never write one of your heroes, the founding members of this religious movement called Christianity, you would never write somebody like Thomas. The reason in John, this sort of schizophrenic inconsistency, is probably because that's what's happened. That's Thomas. That's you and me. You're sort of like this too, aren't you? You go to a retreat. Some of you students are like this. Go to a retreat. You have an emotional experience, and it's real. I think it's genuine. You cry, you believe Jesus, you learn something about him, you go back for a week or two and you read the Bible, and then after a while, what happens? You sort of put him to the side. That's sort of a minor version of what Thomas is going through. You know why? Because every one of us has doubts. And the Bible affirms that. We have all kinds of doubts, if you're honest, depending on your life and circumstance. Sometimes we doubt the existence of God. Sometimes we doubt the goodness of God, because we think God is there, but we see all this injustice and evil and say, is God really good? Is he really loving? Sometimes you doubt the wisdom of God because you look at your life and saying, I had my life planned out like this. 
but all these other detours came into my life. And now I'm just thinking, wow, what in the world? God is in control, but is he getting my life right? Is he, you doubt the wisdom of God. Some of you doubt the promises of God to say, you know what? You have eternal blessings in the heavenly places. You could taste that right now. All these promises, you're reconciled, you're justified. You have a new community of believers in the church. You have all these promises in the Bible, but you doubt that if you're honest. You're saying, is it really that good? Is it really true my marriage and my parenting and my, my schoolwork and my careers and the difficulty of community and church? We have all kinds of doubts. But this leads us to our second point. Not only do we have doubts, but Christianity, and this is why I think it's most intellectually viable, is most honest about your doubts. This is how it's honest in our second point. What do I mean by this? Well, in the passage, Jesus, he's balanced because Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't commend Thomas's doubt. You know, he doesn't say, you're the model Christian. Of course, he wants disciples to fully believe in him. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't demonize doubters. He doesn't say to Thomas and sort of walks in and say, oh my goodness, you have little faith. He doesn't come in the second time after eight days. And by the way, after eight days, it means that it happened on Sunday. So there's something special about Sunday, the first day of worship. But after eight days on Sunday in their worship, he comes in and Jesus is not, no, he's balanced about this. He's fair about it. You know, he's honest about this. He doesn't say, this is the way to be a disciple by always doubting who I am. But it's also saying, I'm not going to demonize you. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to put you down. He's going to engage you. He's, going to, he's not going to demonize your doubts. He's not going to prize your doubts. He's going to speak to your doubts. He's going to be honest about this. Okay, we'll get to this in the third point, but for now. Thomas says, very understandably, you're like this too, unless I feel the marks of the nails in his hands inside, I won't believe. No, he wants evidence. He wants an experience. Now think about it. He he saw Jesus raise Lazarus. He saw Jesus teach in the synagogue. He saw Jesus show compassion. But he says, I want to touch him now. You're telling me he raised from the dead. I want to touch him. I want to experience this. I need to see for myself. Thomas is very honest about this. See, what, what is Thomas really getting at here? You have a guy who's been with Jesus through thick and thin, and now he's skeptical. He wants evidence. He wants the experience. And this is why Christianity is honest about this. It recognizes that in your doubts, you want both as well. Doubts are not just an intellectual exercise. If it was, it would be really easy to convince you. I think Christianity has better arguments than any other worldview out there. They're not airtight, but they're really good arguments for Christianity and the existence of God. By the way, you can read about it. There's all kinds of arguments that sound fancy. They're not too fancy. The teleological argument, the cosmological argument, the ethical argument, the God, that God is actually the unmoved mover, sounds really fancy, but if you just give it 30 minutes, you could get this. I would say you could just share about all of that. None of them are really that airtight. So we can recognize that. It's hard to convince. We'll get to that. But there are real arguments here, but it's not just going to be intellectual if you doubt Christianity. In fact, what Tom is showing us is that it's experiential. He saw all the teaching of Jesus, didn't he? But he wants to touch him. He wants to see it. He wants to experience it. He's like, all you other guys, all other ten disciples, you saw Jesus, you saw the, the scars, you saw his side. I want to see it too. Some of his doubts are not just going to be intellectual. It's going to be personal. It's not a doubt of just the head and intellect. It's a doubt of your heart and your experiences. Christianity is... The Bible is honest about that. It acknowledges that. 
acknowledges that your insecurities and doubts, your skepticism is not just cognitive, but it's experiential. They don't just come from the head. If you're honest, they come more from the heart. In fact, I would argue this. Most doubts that you have about Christianity or God or that Jesus is a savior, I think most of that is not going to be in your head. It's going to be more about your experience. It's less logic and intellect and more about your experiences and your relationships. That's what I think pastorally anyways. Because even for Thomas, he was there when Jesus raised Lazarus. And literally, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Fast forward nine chapters, Jesus resurrects, and Thomas can't believe this. It's not just that he doesn't believe what Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He wants to experience it. He wants to relate to it. He wants to touch it. He wants to smell it. He wants to feel it. Many of you may have heard of this atheist. He passed a, a, a several a handful of decades ago, Bertrand Russell. And ironically, I think he came, he grew up in a Christian home, Scottish Presbyterian and whatnot, but he's a brilliant mind. He's a staunch atheist. A lot of people talk about him. And there's this one quote that everyone says that attributes to Bertrand Russell. And somebody came up to him and said, Dr. Russell, if you're wrong about God, if you're just wrong about God, and then you die and you go up to heaven and you're standing before God, what are you going to say to him if you're just wrong? And this is what Bertrand Russell said. If I stand before God when I die, I'm going to tell him, not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. And I get it. Here's the thing. There's plenty of evidence. We don't need to get into that today. But I think even for Bertrand Russell, if you read his biography, I think a lot of his experience is what led to his skepticism and doubt. So the Bible is honest about your doubts here today, friends, as it is with Thomas. You may have an intellectual doubt saying, how can there be a good God who loves everyone when we see so much injustice and evil and suffering in the world? Why do good, bad things happen to good people? Well, that's a good question. You may have a philosophical doubt. You're asking yourself, what's the purpose of humanity? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? What is the greatest good? You may be thinking about that. It may be an, intellect, it may be an ethical doubt. It's saying, well, Christians are supposed to be really good, but they're such hypocrites, especially in this day and age. The institution of the church, there's all kinds of corruption and sexual assault and spiritual abuse happening in the church. And you doubt the existence of the authenticity of Christian faith because Christians are so bad. Wasn't it Mahatma Gandhi that said once, I would believe in Christians if Christians look more like their savior? Well, that's a legitimate concern, maybe the biggest one. But my argument here, I think still, if you have doubts, like Thomas, is that your doubts probably stem mostly from personal experience. The goodness of God, the forgiveness of God, all the promises of the Bible. You doubt God because there's someone in your family who has passed away, maybe without believing. You doubt the goodness of God because you're engaged to the person you thought you would marry, and then the engagement fell through. You look at the workplace and you feel like you should be promoted, but everyone around you seems to do a little bit better than you do. You look at this, you look at your parents, if you're in a youth group, and you're saying, why can't my parents be more understanding? Why can't they get what I'm going through? And if you're a parent, you look at your children, why can't my child understand how much I love him or her? No, there's personal heartache and brokenness, and every time I come across someone who doubts anything in the Bible, they never come to me just strictly with an intellectual argument. They're always coming from something in their experiences. I can't believe in predestination because my dad is not a believer. 
How is it that God could choose him, not, not choose him to go to heaven? Now, there's, I get it. Those are real, and Christianity is honest about that. But you have to be honest about that, too. It's not just intellectual. It's going to be experiential. And this is what I think. All of us have doubts. Christianity is honest about them. It's both head and heart. It comes from your experience. A lot of times, it's your suffering that brings out the doubts. Because you have doubts inside. You have a lack of faith. You have a lack of belief. Suffering oftentimes brings out what you really believe. Your suffering in your life discovers and digs up and uncovers the doubts that you may have. Well, there's a little 10-year-old girl years ago that I read about. Her name is Annie, and she was sick on the hospital bed. Her father, his name was Charles, was kneeling beside her bed every day of his life. He hadn't been to work. He already lost and was divorced from his first wife. He was a scientist, and his research and his papers were put on hold because he was there by his 10-year-old daughter, by Annie, every day in the last moments of her life, day after day after day at Annie's bed, listening to this little girl, his daughter, laboring to breathe. And he said later that this incident, after Annie has passed away, this incident pushed him over the edge of grief. It was to shape his life, according to some biographers. It was to shape his thought more than any other event. His name? Charles Darwin. You see, it wasn't his first science that undermined his faith in God. And by the way, science and religion are not opposed to each other. It was his first experience. It was his first experience that undermined his faith in God. It was personal for him, friends. It's always personal. Bertrand Russell, not enough evidence. No, it's very personal for him because we're personal creatures. We're made to live in relationship and emotions and heartache. And sometimes it's the experience that overcomes our logic in our head, even though we want both. See, even my job as a pastor... In some ways, you could describe the job of a pastor of addressing week in and week out your doubts about the promises of God. That's a struggle. Well, I'll be honest, I doubt it too. And I'm supposed to be a pastor, but I, like, I feel free because if Thomas was one of the disciples and he could doubt, doubt Jesus, then I could have my doubts. I don't doubt Jesus, but sometimes I doubt what I'm doing here. Week in, week out, my job is to really preach the gospel and love people so that you believe in everything that the Bible promises for you. But after a certain amount of years, you begin to think, is this really working? <laughs> Talk to the same people over the same issues and no change at all. And then you look in the mirror and you're like, I still have my own same issues. Is this really working, this gospel thing? Because we all have all kinds of different doubts. There's a difference here. Let me state it this way. The reason that you have doubts on a personal level is because what you know up in your head in the Bible oftentimes doesn't resonate what you see in the world. God is the control and he's love. You see all kinds of injustice and war and atrocities in the world. How is God powerful and in love, but also there's so much evil and injustice? Why doesn't God do something? You see something in the world that doesn't resonate in your head. So some of the doubts that pastors all deal with, and you can be honest about this, because Christianity is, you think, is Jesus really better than being rich? Am I really richer in Jesus with the spiritual blessings in heaven? Is that really better than having a better bank account? Because that's what the Bible says. Is Jesus really, is his love really better than the love I want from this girl? Because I know that Jesus died for me and saved me from eternal hell so I could be eternal bliss in heaven. 
you get it, but then you feel so deeply about this other person. Is it really better to have the love of Jesus than this love from a girl that I so desperately want to marry? Is my sense of worth and identity, my sense of security, my mission in life, do I like myself and my mission, my reason for being better than success and achievement according to worldly standards? Ah, we all doubt that, don't we? wonder if it's true. You know why? Because doubt isn't just intellectual, it's experiential. You guys, many of us understand the promises of the Bible, but it doesn't always resonate with our experience in this world. That's why Paul says, for now, you walk by faith, holding on to the promises and not by sight. And the Bible is honest about it. It says it's hard. Yeah, we get it. It's difficult. Christianity is the most honest about that. It recognizes that there's always belief and unbelief working at the same time in your life. Because we're not perfect, we're broken, we're sinners. We don't have perfect faith and we believe in things, but also it's sometimes mixed with unbelief. Just like the father in Mark chapter nine, whose son was healed by Jesus, and he says, now I believe, but help my unbelief. A contradictory statement, I believe, but help my unbelief. And the Bible is honest about that. It wants everyone to believe perfectly, but it's realistic. If Thomas is gonna struggle with his faith, you and I may too. And it's honest about the realities the anatomy of a doubt, in other words. Okay, so let's look at this. Every one of us has doubts, if you're tracking with me. The Bible and Christianity, maybe it's the most honest about your doubts, but you don't want just honesty. You know, you just don't want a diagnosis. You want a solution. What do you do with your doubts? How do you grow in this? Well, this is, we can't get into it, but let me just give you the nut of the argument. The short answer is this. What do you do with your doubts? Bring them to Jesus. That's what the psalmists do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like I'm stumbling in Psalm 73, you know, and my enemies are reaching after me. You know, the psalmist, they, if they have any reason to doubt the goodness of God, the psalmist, King David, he'll see the promises of God and see the world reality around him, and it doesn't resonate. What do you do? Bring them to Jesus. You'll notice here that Jesus comes eight days later in verse 26, and he already knows that Thomas wants evidence. In fact, he may come just to talk to Thomas because at least recorded in John, what does Jesus say? He doesn't chit-chat. He doesn't do the fish thing. He comes and he meets with, Jesus, meets with Thomas and right away he addresses his two concerns. Thomas says, I want to touch the scars in the hands and the side. Jesus says, Thomas, put out your hand, touch the nails, touch the scars in my hands and my side. Here's the funny thing. We don't know if Thomas really did this. You know, you look at paintings of, you know, the museums of this moment, they always show Thomas putting the finger into Jesus' side. We don't know if he actually did it. Jesus invited him, said, here I am. He's meeting Thomas where he is. We don't know if Thomas actually had to do it. Seeing Jesus may have been enough to believe. Remember his personal experience, seeing Jesus come up close. Bring your concerns to Jesus. I mean, after all, Thomas was one of the 12 apostles, one of the requirements to be an apostle back in the day is that they have to see Jesus physically. So there's a bigger vision here to say, Thomas, you want to be an apostle? You have to see me resurrect. You saw him before. But right away, he answered Thomas's objections. And in verse 27, this is what he says. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. We don't know if Thomas actually did this. But the point is this, Jesus sees and knows your doubts. He sees where you are. He knows your concerns. He knows your struggles. 
Your question is your anger. Jesus sees it. Jesus comes eight days later. By the way, how in the world did Jesus know that those were the two things that Thomas wanted? Because he's God. He just knew. The door was locked. You know, you don't put details like this unless it was historical. John was a historian. He's writing the account according to what he's seen as an eyewitness. How did Jesus know those are the two concerns of Thomas? How did Jesus get in when the doors are locked? Because he's God. He comes in, and right away he says, Thomas, I see your concerns. I get it. I know what you want. Stick out your hand. Go ahead. Touch my scars. He'll see your issues too. He knows. He sees it. He's personal. Jesus doesn't just barge in with anger and frustration. He doesn't go to Thomas. He says, one, the world is wrong with you. You were there when I said I'm the resurrection and the life. You were there when I said I'm going to heal Lazarus and bring him out from dead. You saw this, Thomas. I taught with you. I ate with you. How many Bible studies have I got to do with these for you to change? He doesn't do that, Jesus. He's so patient. See, this isn't an angered Jesus. It's not a frustrated Jesus. It's a patient Jesus who invites you into a personal relationship, says, I want to unite myself to you. Reach out and touch me, and I'll touch you. He's gentle, he's patient, he addresses your doubts. You see, friends, Christianity is a very reasonable faith. It's not opposed to logic, it's not opposed to science. Christianity actually makes sense of science and makes sense of logic makes sense of evidence. In fact, you can't define evidence. You can't have the task of science unless there's an absolute triune God. Just sit on that for a moment, and we could talk about why that is later. But Christianity is not just going to be an emotional religion, a personal one, but it's not also not anti-intellectual. It's a reasonable faith. Tim Keller writes in his book, I think it's a precursor to his more common book, A Reason for God, but Tim Keller wrote this one book, Making Sense of God. And in this book, he talks about an atheist blogger who eventually came to faith at his church redeemer. But he's an atheist blogger, and this is basically what he said on the intellectual realm. He said, since coming to your church, I realized that there have been a thousand PhD dissertations written on every single verse of the Bible. And for every contention that one verse contradicts another, or is in error, there are 10 cogent counterpoints to that one claim contradiction in the Bible. I'm just putting it out there. If you want real academic intellectual engagement with the claims of the Bible, it's really out there. This is an atheist blogger, probably plenty of them out there, and when he did his homework, he at least recognized, although he may not have been convinced, that there are intellectual arguments, a thousand PhD dissertations written on every single verse of the Bible. It's out there if you want to engage, but as I said, I think most of our doubts are experiential. That's why we need to come out and touch Jesus. Do you ever wonder as we come to a close, why you have so much doubt in the Christian faith and all I have to do is ask a simple question to people? A simple question. Do you know what that is? I don't ask them, do you know the cosmological argument? <laughs> Which isn't a great argument anyways. Do you know the transcendental argument? No, I don't ask them that. Like, I don't know if I believe the goodness of God. You know, I could pray for them. I, you know, I ask them about their story. I ask them one question to answer their doubts. I say, do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Guess what their answer is? I haven't read the Bible in years. How in the world are you supposed to address a personal relationship if your doubts come from your personal experience without talking to a personal Savior in Jesus? to talk to him in prayer and to hear from him in the Bible. You're probably thinking, well, Thomas, he had Jesus physically there. I say we have something better, not different from Jesus. 
We have something better than the physical presence of Jesus. We have Jesus' word. It's complete. Now, we'll see Jesus face to face, but we have his spirit. We have his revelation. We have who he is given to us in the Bible. That's why John, in the verses that we didn't read, in verse 31, what does he say, John, when he writes this? He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, you may say, I don't have Jesus. He's not coming through the locked doors. He has something better. You don't have locked doors and Jesus coming through. You have an open Bible revealing Jesus. So if you have doubts about Christianity, do you read the Bible? Do you sincerely and genuinely engage? Do you pray to him to figure this out? Because John is saying, he already knows what you're going to say. He knows that you're going to say, okay, Jesus wasn't here. Well, yeah, you're not, a, you're not an apostle. But he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's a purpose clause. So in order that you may believe, and so that you may believe with the goal that you may believe, the Gospel of John shows John as an evangelist. The letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, shows John as a pastor. The Gospel of John in verse 31, Jesus, John says, I write these things so that you may believe, so that you may embrace, so that you will be, be able to believe and to and distill all the doubts that you may have. What does John say as a pastor when he writes 1 John? He says, I write these things to who believe? So he's writing, these, he's writing his gospel to those who are not believers. He's writing his letter, 1 John, to the church who are believers. And you know what he's saying, actually, in 1 John? He's addressing the same thing, doubts. <laughs> but he's very personal. You can touch him. You can see him. This is the truth of him. Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Do you worship? See, at least Thomas got something right. He was honest about his doubts, and he brought it into the community of the church, and he brought it to Jesus. If you have doubts, the worst thing you could do is just to investigate by yourself. Do your homework, but bring it into the community of the church. We won't have every airtight answer, but I think we'll have a better answer than any other alternate worldview or philosophical view. That's a big claim, but I think the Bible tells us so. Bring it to Jesus. Talk to him. Let him know your hurt, your pain. Christianity is the only religion that says the Son of God comes down into this world to die for your sins and mine. We have broken his law, broken his commandments. Christianity is the only one that says you can't save yourself, but I come into this world in your life, in your experiences, and unite you to myself. I forgive you your sins. I resurrect from the dead. Let's discover this together. Downing Thomas, did you realize that all the commentators were say? That Thomas, who's doubting Thomas, made the most climactic and strongest claim about Jesus in the Gospel of John. This is the climax of who Jesus is, coming from Thomas's mouth. That's the funny thing. Thomas, you know, he gets a bad rap. Doubting Thomas, he made the greatest, most climactic claim about who Jesus is. He says, my Lord, my God, you guess what? It's personal. He didn't say, okay, you are God and Lord. He says, after he sees Jesus, my Lord, my God. Is personal for him. The climax, that's a strong statement. Not just God, not just Lord, my Lord and my God. Because these things were written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. I pray that we can bring all our doubts and questions to him so that we could grow together as a community of believers in the church of Jesus Christ to make our assurance of salvation our election sure. Because then and only then will Jesus be our Lord 
in our God. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you're, that you're honest about life. You're honest about who you are, who we are, our struggles. We thank you that we could be free and authentic to express our concerns and to be honest about life. And it's not always easy, and it's not always great. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus is personal, and he comes to us, and he speaks into our questions, our skepticism, our doubts, in order to bring us closer to him and strengthen our faith and understanding of the promises of God and to live that out in the everyday matters of life. So we thank you so much for that truth and that you are always for us and with us and all our promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.